Chapters 1 and 2 of Tenting Tonight, a Chronicle of Sport and Adventure in Glacier Park and the Cascade Mountains. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Tenting Tonight, a Chronicle of Sport and Adventure in Glacier Park and the Cascade Mountains by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Chapter One: The Trail. The trail is narrow, often but the width of the pony's feet, a tiny path that leads on and on. It is always ahead, sometimes bold and wide, as when it leads the way through the forest, often narrow, as when it hugs the sides of the precipice, sometimes even hiding for a time in river bottom or swamp or covered by the debris of last winter's avalanche. Sometimes it picks its precarious way over snowfields, which hang at dizzy heights, and again it flounders through mountain streams, where the tired horses must struggle for footing, and do not even dare to stoop and drink. It is dusty, it is wet, it climbs, it falls, it is beautiful and terrible but always it skirts the coast of adventure. Always it goes on, and always it calls to those who follow it. Tiny path that it is, worn by the feet of earth's wanderers, it is the thread which has knit together the solid places of the earth. The path of feet in the wilderness is the onward march of life itself. City dwellers know nothing of the trail, poor followers of the pavements, what to them is this six-inch path of glory? Life for many of them is but a thing of avenues and streets, fixed and unmysterious, a matter of numbers and lights and post-boxes and people. They know whither their streets lead. There is no surprise about them, no sudden discovery of a river to be forded, no glimpse of deer in full flight, or of an eagle poised over a stream. No heights, no depths. To know if it rains at night, they look down at shining pavements. They do not hold their faces to the sky. Now I am a near city dweller. For ten months in the year I am particular about mail delivery, and eat an evening dinner, and occasionally agitate the matter of having a telephone in every room in the house. I run the usual gamut of dinners, dances, and bridge, with the usual country club setting as the spring goes on, and each May I order a number of flimsy frocks, in the conviction that I have done all the hard going I need to, and that this summer we shall go to the New England coast. And then, about the first of June, there comes a day when I find myself going over the fishing tackle, unearthed by the spring house-cleaning, and sorting out of inextricable confusion the family's supply of sweaters, old riding-breeches, puttees, rough shoes, trout-flies, quirts, ponchos, spurs, reels, and old felt hats. Some of the hats still have a few dejected flies fastened to the ribbon, melancholy hackles, sadly ruffled royal coachmen, and here and there the determined gaiety of the parmachine bell. I look at my worn and rubbed high-laced boots, at my riding-clothes, snagged with many briars and patched from many saddles, at my old brown velour hat, survival of many storms in many countries. 
It has been rained on in Flanders, slept on in France, and has carried many a refreshing draught to my lips in my ain country. I put my fishing-rod together and give it a tentative flick across the bed, and I am lost. The family professes surprise, but it is acquiescent. And that night, or the next day, we wire that we will not take the house in Maine, and I discover that the family has never expected to go to Maine, but has been buying more trout-flies right along. As a family we are always buying trout-flies. We buy a great many. I do not know what becomes of them. To those whose lives are limited to the unexciting sport of buying golf-balls, which have endless names but no variety, I will explain that the trout do not eat the flies, but merely attempt to, so that one of the eternal mysteries is how our flies disappear. I have seen a junior Reinhardt start out with a boat, a rod, six large cakes of chocolate and four dollars worth of flies, and return a few hours later with one fish, one professor, one doctor, and one black moth minus the hook. And the boat had not upset. June, after the decision, becomes a time of subdued excitement. For fear we shall forget to pack them, things are set out early. Stringers hang from chandeliers, quirts from doorknobs, shoe-polish and disgorgers and adhesive plaster litter the dressing-tables, rows of boots line the walls, and in the evenings those of us who are at home pore over maps and lists. This last year our plans were ambitious. They took in two complete expeditions, each with our own pack-outfit. The first was to take ourselves, some eight packers, guides and cooks, and enough horses to carry our outfit, thirty-one in all, through the western and practically unknown side of Glacier National Park in northwestern Montana, to the Canadian border. If we survived that, we intended to go by rail to the Chelan country in northern Washington, and there, again with a pack train, cross the Cascades over totally unknown country to Puget Sound. We did both, to the eternal credit of our guides and horses. The family, lucky for those of us who have the wanderlust, is four-fifths masculine. I am the odd fifth, unlike the story of King George the fifth and Queen Mary the other four-fifths. It consists of the head of the family, to be known hereafter as the head, the big boy, the middle boy, the little boy, and myself. As the big boy is very, very big, and the little boy is not really very little, being on the verge of long trousers, we make a comfortable travelling unit, and because we were leaving the beaten path and going a-gypsying, with a new camp each night no one knew exactly where, the party gradually augmented. First we added an optimist named Bob, then we added a movie man, called Joe for short, because it was his name, and a still photographer, who was literally still most of the time. Some of these pictures are his. He did some beautiful work, but he really needed a mouth only to eat with. The movie man is unpopular with the junior members of the family just now, because he hid his camera in the bushes and took the little boy in a state of goose-flesh on the bank of Bowman Lake. 
but of course we have not got to Bowman Lake yet. During the year before, I had ridden over the better-known trails of Glacier Park with Howard Eaton's riding party, and when I had crossed the Gunsight Pass, we had looked north and west to a great country of mountains, capped with snow, with dense forests on the lower slopes and in the valleys. "'What is it?' I had asked the ranger, who had accompanied us across the pass. "'It is the west side of Glacier Park,' he explained. "'It is not yet opened up for tourist travel. Once or twice in a year a camping party goes up through this part of the park. That's all.' "'What is it like?' I asked wonderful so sitting there on my horse i made up my mind that sometime i would go up the west side of glacier park to the canadian border roughly speaking there are at least six hundred square miles of glacier park on the west side that are easily accessible but that are practically unknown probably the area is more nearly a thousand square miles and this does not include the fastnesses of the range itself. It comprehends only the slopes on the west side to the borderline of the Flathead River. The reason for the isolation of the west side of Glacier Park is easily understood. The park is divided into two halves by the Rocky Mountain Range, which traverses it from northwest to southeast. Over it there is no single wagon road of any sort between the Canadian border and Helena, perhaps two hundred and fifty miles. A railroad crosses at the Maria's Pass, but from that to the Canadian line one hundred miles, travel from the east is cut off over the range, except by trail. To reach the west side of Glacier Park at the present time, the tourist, having seen the wonders of the east side, must return to Glacier Park Station, take a train over the Maria's Pass, and get out at Belton. Even then, he can only go by boat up to Lewis's Hotel on Lake MacDonald, a trifling distance. There are no hotels beyond Lewis's, and no roads. Naturally, this tremendous area is unknown and unvisited. It is being planned, however, by the new Department of National Parks to build a road this coming year along Lake MacDonald. Eventually, this much-needed highway will connect with the Canadian roads, and thus indirectly with Banff and Lake Louise. The opening up of the west side of Glacier Park will make it perhaps the most unique of all our parks, as it is undoubtedly the most magnificent. The grandeur of the east side will be tempered by the more smiling and equally lovely western slopes and when between the east and the west sides there is constructed the great motor highway which will lead across the range we will have perhaps the most scenic motor road in the united states until in the fullness of time we build another road across cascade pass in washington end of chapter one chapter two the big adventure came at last the day to start west. In spite of warnings, we found that our irreducible minimum of luggage filled five wardrobe trunks. In vain we went over our lists and cast out such bulky things as extra handkerchiefs and silk stocks and fancy neckties and toilette silver. We started with all five. It was boiling hot, the sun beat in at the windows of the transcontinental train and stifled us. 
Over the prairies dust blew in great clouds, covering the window sills with white. The big boy and the middle boy and the little boy referred scornfully to the flannels and sweaters on which I had been so insistent. The head slept across the continent. The little boy counted prairie dogs. Then almost suddenly we were in the mountains, for the Rockies seemed to rise out of a great plain. The air was stimulating. There had been a great deal of snow last winter, and the wind from the ice-capped peaks overhead blew down and chilled us. We threw back our heads and breathed. Before going to Belton for our trip with the pack outfit, we rode again for two weeks with the Howard Eaton party through the east side of the park, crossing again those great passes, for each one of which, like the Indians, the traveller counts a coup, Mount Morgan, a mile high and the width of an army mule on top, Old Pegan under the shadow of the garden wall, Mount Henry, where the wind blows always a steady gale. We had scaled Dawson with the aid of ropes, since snowslides covered the trail, and crossed the cut bank in a hailstorm. Like the noble Duke of York, Howard Eaton had led us up a hill one day and led us down again. Only he did it every day. Once in my notebook I wrote on top of a mountain my definition of a mountain pass. I have used it before, but because it was written with shaking fingers and was torn from my very soul, I cannot better it. This is what I wrote. A pass is a blood-curdling spot, up which one's horse climbs like a goat, and down the other side of which it slides as you lead it, trampling ever and anon on a tender part of your foot. A pass is the highest place between two peaks. A pass is not an opening, but a barrier which you climb with chills and descend with prayer. A pass is a thing which you try to forget at the time, and which you boast about when you get back home. At last came the day when we crossed the Gunsight Pass, and under Sperry Glacier looked down and across to the north and west. It was sunset and cold. The day had been a long and trying one. We had ridden across an ice-field which sloped gently off, into China, I dare say. I did not look over. Our horses were weary, and we were saddle-sore and hungry. Pete, our big guide, whose name is really not Pete at all, waved an airy hand toward the massed peaks beyond, the land of our dreams. Well, he said, there it is. And there it was. Getting a pack outfit ready for a long trip into the wilderness is a serious matter. We were taking thirty-one horses, guides, packers, and a cook. But we were doing more than that. We were taking two boats. This was Bob's idea. Any highly original idea, such as taking boats where not even tourists had gone before, or putting eggs on a bucking horse, or carrying grapefruit for breakfast into the wilderness, was Bob's idea. You see, I figure it out like this, he said, when, on our arrival at Belton, we found the boats among our equipment. If we can get those boats up to the Canadian line and come down the Flathead Rapids all the way, it will only take about four days on the river. It's a stunt that's never been pulled off. Do you mean, 
I said, that we are going to run four days of rapids that have never been run? That's it. I looked around. There, in a group, were the head and the big boy and the middle boy and the little boy, and a fortune-teller at Atlantic City had told me to beware of water. At the worst places, the optimist continued, we can send Joe ahead in one boat with the movie outfit and get you as you come along. I dare say, I observed with some bitterness, of course we may upset, but if we do, I'll try to go down for the third time in front of the camera. But even then the boats were being hoisted into a wagon bed filled with hay, and I knew that I was going to run four days of rapids. It was written. It was a bright morning. In a corral the horses were waiting to be packed. Rolls of blankets, crates of food, and camping utensils lay everywhere. The big boy marshaled the fishing tackle. Bill, the cook, was searching the town for the top of an old stove to bake on. We had provided two reflector ovens, but he regarded them with suspicion. They would, he suspected, not do justice to his specialty, the cornmeal saddlebag, a sort of sublimated hot cake. I strolled to the corral and cast a horsewoman's eye on my mount. He looks like a very nice horse, I said. He's quite handsome. Pete tightened up the cinch. Yes, he observed, he's all right. He's a pretty good mare. The head was wandering around with lists in his hand. His conversation ran something like this. Pocket flashes, chocolate, jam, medicine case, reels, landing nets, cigarettes, tooth powder, slickers, matches. He was always accumulating matches. One moment a box of matches would be in plain sight, and the next it had disappeared. He became a sort of match magazine, so that if anybody had struck him violently in almost any spot, he would have exploded. Hours went by. The sun was getting high and hot. The crowd which had been watching gradually disappeared about its business. The two boats, big, sturdy river-boats they were, had rumbled along toward the wilderness, one on top of the other, with George Locke and Mike Shannon as pilots, watching for breakers ahead. In the corral, our supplies were being packed on the horses. Bill Shea and Pete, Tom Sullivan and Tom Farmer and their assistants, working against time. In crates were our cooking utensils, ham, bacon, canned salmon, jam, flour, cornmeal, eggs, baking powder, flies, rods and reels, reflector ovens, sunburn lotion, coffee, cocoa, and so on. Cocoa is the cowboy's friend. Innumerable blankets, tarp beds, and war sacks lay rolled ready for the pack saddles. The cook was declaiming loudly that someone had opened his pack and taken out his cleaver. For a pack outfit, the west side of Glacier Park is ideal. The east side is much the best so far for those who wish to make short trips along the trails into the mountains, although as yet only a small part, comparatively, of the eastern wonderland is open. There one may spend a day, or several days, in the midst of the wildest possible country, and yet return at night to excellent hotels. On the west side, however, a pack outfit is necessary. There is but one hotel, Lewis's, on Lake MacDonald. 
To get to the Canadian line there must be camping facilities, for at least eight days if there are no stop overs. And not to stop over is to lose the joy of the trip. It is an ideal two to three weeks jaunt with a pack train. A woman who can sit a horse, and everyone can ride in a western saddle, a woman can make the land trip not only with comfort but with joy, that is, a woman who likes the outdoors. What did we wear that bright morning when, already at last, the cook on the chuck-wagon, the boats ambling ahead, with Bill Hossack, the teamster, driving the long line of heavily packed horses, and our own saddlers lined up for the adventure, we moved out on to the trail? Well, the men wore khaki riding trousers and flannel shirts, broad-rimmed felt hats, army socks drawn up over the cuff of the breeches, and pack-shoes. A pack-shoe is one in which the leather of the upper part makes the sole also, without a seam. On to this soft sole is sewed a heavy leather one. The pack-shoe has a fastened tongue, and is waterproof. And I? I had not counted on the movie-man, and I was dressed for comfort in the woods. I had buckskin riding-breeches and high boots, and over my thin riding-shirt I wore a cloth coat. I had packed in my war-bag a divided skirt also, and a linen suit, for hot days, of breeches and coat. But of this latter the least said the better. It betrayed me, and in portions deserted me. All of us carried tin drinking-cups, which vied with the bells on the pack-animals for jingle. Most of us had sweaters or leather wind-jammers. The guides wore chaps of many colors, boots with high heels, which put our practical packs in the shade, and gay silk handkerchiefs. Joe was to be a detachable unit. As a matter of fact, he became detached rather early in the game, having been accidentally given a bucker. It was on the second day, I think, that his horse buried his head between his forelegs, and dramatized one of the best bits of the trip when Joe was totally unable to photograph it. He had his own guide and extra horse for the camera. It had been our expectation that, at the most hazardous parts of the journey, he would perch on some crag and show us courageously risking our necks to have a good time. But on the really bad places he had his own life to save, and he never fully trusted Maud, I think, after the first day. Maud was his horse. Besides, when he did climb to some eerie and photographed me, for instance, in a sort of Napoleon crossing the Alps attitude, sitting my horse on the brink of eternity, and being reassured from safety by the optimist, outside the picture, of course, the developed film flattened out the landscape, so that although I was on the edge of a canyon a mile deep, I might as well have been posing on the bank of the Ohio River. On the east side of the park I had ridden highball. It is not particularly significant that I started the summer on highball and ended it on Budweiser. Now I had Angel, a huge white mare with a pink nose, a loving disposition, and a gait that kept me swallowing my tongue for fear I would bite the end off it. The little boy had Prince, a small pony, which ran exactly like an Airedale dog, and in every canter beat out the entire string. 
The head had H and considered him well indicated. One bronco was called Bronchitis. The top horse of the string was Bill Shea's Dynamite, according to Bill Shea. There were Dusty, Shorty, Sally Goodwin, Buffalo Tom, Chalkeye, Comet, and Swapping Tater, Swapping Tater being a pacer who, when he hit the ground, swapped feet. Bob had Sister Sarah. At last everything was ready. The pack train got slowly under way. We leaped into our saddles, leaped being a figurative term which grew more and more figurative as time went on, and we grew saddle-weary and stiff, and, passing the pack train on a canter, led off for the wilderness. All that first day we rode, now in the sun, now in deep forest. Luncheon time came, but the pack train was far behind. We waited, but we could not hear so much as the tinkle of its bells. So we munched cakes of chocolate from the pockets of our riding coats and went grimly on. The wagon with the boats had made good time. It was several miles along the wagon trail before we caught up with it. It had found a quiet harbor beside the road, and the boatmen were demanding food. We tossed them what was left of the chocolate and went on. The presence of a wagon trail in that empty land, unvisited and unknown, requires explanation. In the first place it was not really a road, it was a trail, and in places barely that. But sixteen years before a road had been cleared through the forest by some people who believed there was oil near the Canadian line. They cut down trees and built corduroy bridges. But in sixteen years it has not been used. No wheels have worn it smooth. It takes its leisurely way, now through wilderness, now through burnt country, where the trees stand stark and dead, now through prairie or creek bottom, now up, now down, always with the range rising abruptly to the east and with the Flathead River somewhere to the west. It will not take much expenditure to make that old wagon trail into a good road. It has its faults. It goes down steep slopes. On the second day out, the chuck wagon got away and, fetching up at the bottom, threw out Bill the cook and nearly broke his neck. It climbs like a cat after a young robin. It is rocky or muddy or both, but it is potentially a road. The Rocky Mountains run northwest and southeast, and in numerous basins, fed by melting glaciers and snowfields, are deep and quiet lakes. These lakes, on the west side, discharge their overflow through roaring and precipitous streams to the Flathead, which flows south and east. While our general direction was north, it was our intention to turn off east and camp at the different lakes, coming back again to the wagon trail to resume our journey. Therefore it became necessary, day after day, to take our boats off the wagon road and haul them along foot trails none too good. The log of the two boats is in itself a thrilling story. There were days and days when the wagon was mired, when it stuck in the fords of streams or in soft places on the trail. It was a land flotilla by day, and with its straw a couch at night. 
and there came toward the end of the journey that one nerve-racking day when over a sixty-foot cliff down a foot trail it was necessary to rope wagon boats and all to get the boats into the flathead river but all this was before us then we only knew it was summer that the days were warm and the nights cool that the streams were full of trout that such things as telegraphs and telephones were falling far in our rear and that before us was the big adventure End of chapter 2